as we come to God's Word this morning. There's a sense in which I feel a a great measure of uh, trepidation as I approach uh, the preaching of the Word this Lord's Day. Uh, And basically because of the fact of the many challenges and circumstances in which we find ourselves as a country. And I hope to address uh, something that would be relative to those matters. There's part of me that just wants to say, let's just go on and let's take up the book of Acts. Let's take up the next psalm and let's just forget about what's going on out there. But there's another part of me that says I can't do that. And so I want to at least come with some measure to God's Word and hopefully bring some clarity from that Word to our present circumstances. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the psalm that we'll be looking at this morning. It's Psalm 94. Psalm 94. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I, as I read this psalm. Psalm 94, verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you? One which devises mischief by decree? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my, my refuge. He has brought me back, excuse me, he has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord God will destroy them. Let's once again seek the face of God as we come to his word this morning. Let's pray. Our God, we stand before you as we gather here together. Songs that we have sung have been 
our offerings to you of praise. The prayers that we have offered have been the praises and the concerns of our hearts for you to act and to manifest yourself as a gracious, sovereign, willing God to guide and direct. And now we come to your word and plead with you that you by your spirit would come and open the word and enable us to understand it and apply it to ourselves and to be guided by it. Help me, Lord, to preach your word. Help me to preach it faithfully, accurately, and help us all to take away your truth, not merely in our ears, but in our hearts, in our lives. Make it a transforming instrument in your hand today, we plead. And we plead in the name of Jesus Christ, and we plead in the hope of the coming of your Spirit. Amen. Human beings are are very complex creatures. Body and soul. Souls with faculties that range from the ability to think, to the ability to feel, desire, evaluate, and choose. No two human beings are identical. And in fact, no human being will respond in similar circumstances, always in an identical way. We are very complex creatures. And as complex creatures, we also engage in complex human relationships. Relationships at many different levels and for many different reasons and in many different ways. And as we relate in different ways to different people at different times, we sometimes, we, well, we change. And then you take those complex human beings and those complex human relationships and you bring them all together in complex human societies. Societies which are constantly morphing and changing as they come to different circumstances. And certainly, if there's anything that is obvious or should be obvious to every one of us in our present circumstances of life here in the United States is that life is just changing. This year has been different than just any other year that we could ever imagine. Maybe if you're old enough to remember 1920, you can remember a pandemic. Maybe some of us can remember back to the 60s and and can remember some of the riots and the challenges that were faced at those times. But we're not what we were in the 60s, and we're not what we were in the 20s. We are United States in 21st century. Complex creatures, complex relationships, complex societies. And very complex situations. And just when you think you're done addressing one particular situation, something else comes across our, our, our circumstances. Something else changes. Something else happens. And now, wait a minute, I thought I was addressing that problem. No, now this one is built on top of that one. And now that one is built on top of this one. And now we... Which one are you talking about when you start talking about the problems we face in America? And because of all of those 
realities, brethren, it's just absolutely impossible for any one sermon to even come close to address all of the needs and all of the issues that one needs to address when we face the circumstances of life. Matter of fact, there's probably 320 million different viewpoints on every one of the circumstances that we have faced in America. And to try to address them all would be impossible. I'm not going to do what one pastor did that I listened to this week. He started his online sermon by saying, this is going to be a very long sermon. And it was. It was over an hour and a half long. In order to try to address the various aspects of some of these circumstances. I'm not going to do that to you. One, you're not watching online. You're sitting in the sun in the parking lot. And so I want, though, to come from God's Word and try to at least give some truth to guide and direct in some measure something of what we're facing in our world today. There's a a cry that's, that's going up all over America. And it's a cry for justice. And people from all different backgrounds and all different vantage points and looking at all these different circumstances have a similar cry for justice. So that's what I want to address this morning, this whole matter of justice. How should we view these circumstances When we're crying for justice. Well, the psalmist helps us. And that's what I want us to consider this morning is Psalm 94 and this matter of a cry for justice. The psalm breaks down into two parts. In verses 1 through 11, we have societal concerns that the psalmist wants to address. Societal concerns or a societal focus, verses 1 to 11. And then the second major part of of the psalm begins at verse 12 and goes down to verse 20. And there he has personal concerns or a personal focus. And there's a real change that takes place right at verse 12 in this particular psalm. And so I'd like for us, first of all, consider the societal concerns. The societal concerns. And there are three parts to this societal concern or his societal focus. He's going to make an appeal. He's going to bring some charges. And he's going to address some witnesses. Notice with me, first of all, as we look at these societal concerns, the first point, making an ardent appeal, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist makes an ardent appeal. O Lord God of vengeance, God of justice, shine forth. Rise up, O God of the earth, render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? Well, he makes an appeal, but notice, first of all, whom does the psalmist address? When he comes to make this appeal, whom does he address? Well, notice he addresses God of vengeance. Twice he addresses him as the God of vengeance. Not a term that sits too well with some people when we think about life in general, especially now we're going to think about God. God is a God who is vengeful. God is a God who brings vengeance. Well, yes, he is. C.H. Spurgeon uh, quoted a, a man who gave a definition or a description here, and he said, Revenge is an act of passion. Vengeance is an act of justice. Injuries are revenged. Crimes are avenged. 
And so when we think of vengeance here, we need to think of it in terms of the way the Scripture describes it. God Himself says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot, that is God's enemies, will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. That's the God of the Bible. He is a righteous God who when He sees sin and crime, His act, His direction toward that, or view of that, is to bring vengeance. Paul even notes this in Romans chapter 12. This is not just an Old Testament view of God. This is a biblical view of God. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved, but leaving room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the psalmist begins his appeal by calling out to the God of vengeance. He then changes a bit in verse 2 and describes him as the judge of all the earth. Well, what does a judge do? A judge hears cases of crimes that are brought before him, and he adjudicates, he, he views what takes place, and he views it according to the law, and he pronounces guilt or innocence based on what he sees and what he knows. And this is the judge of all the earth. This is the judge who knows all things. This is the judge who is perfectly righteous. So what is he going to do? What does the psalmist expect him to do? He wants him to make a judgment. Now this also comes from an earlier part of Genesis, this title, the the judge of all the earth. That was the phrase that Abraham used when he's praying over Sodom and Gomorrah. And he doesn't want to see Lot and Lot's family destroyed in the judgment of God when he judges Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he prays, will not the judge of all the earth do right? He says, I expect you to make a righteous judgment in dealing with sinners. This is, the, this is the God to whom the psalmist prays. He prays to a God who he knows is righteous, who is going to deal with sin, who is going to judge, notice, the whole earth. There's no being excused from his court. It's not just the judge of Israel. He's the judge of the whole earth. But lest we think that somehow this is a different God than the rest of the, of the Old Testament. Notice that the first word in the psalm is Yahweh, Jehovah. This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. This is the redeeming God who saves His people. This is the God who is the judge of all the earth. This is the one to whom the psalmist comes when he sees injustice taking place in the earth. So what does he do then when he comes to this God? Well, he makes an appeal to him. And I use that word appeal to try to bring some sort of legal sense to this. He's making an appeal to the highest court that he knows. He's taking his case to the highest court. And he says, shine forth. 
manifest yourself as that God who does deal righteously with sinners, who does execute judgment. Rise up and take your seat behind the bench and judge what you see, what is taking place, what I am bringing before you. And then he adds to that, render recompense to the proud. Now here's where the American view of the judge falls apart. Because our judges, they just hear the cases, and they may, they may pronounce, if it's not judged by jury, or if there's not a jury there, then the judge may pronounce the sentence. He may say, or he may pronounce a, a, a verdict, guilty or innocent. He may actually describe the sentence, but he doesn't actually execute anything. Right? That goes to another place. Well, in the Old Covenant, in Old Testament times, when you had the king, he was both the lawgiver and the enforcer and the judge and the executioner. And so when the psalmist's prays to God of vengeance and the God who is the judge of all the earth, he's expecting him actually to bring the execution of judgment upon these sinners. That's what he's asking for. The psalmist is not being put before us as somebody who is responding wickedly. This is set before us as as a righteous response, a righteous prayer in the face of injustice in the world. And notice how ardent, I, I, I had all kinds of words I came up with, passionate and strident, and you're just trying to find the right word. I mean, he really wants to be heard. Twice he calls him the, 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 the God of vengeance. Once he calls upon him on the God, the, as the God, as the judge of all the earth. Three times he asks him to act, shine forth, rise up, render recompense. And then he's going to add to that. He says, and I want you to do this soon. You see, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to wait for the pandemic to be over, for courts to go back into session, and somehow then take care of this. He says, how long, O Lord? How long? Deal with this right now. I want you to address this problem. So he is ardent. He feels very deeply. As I said at the beginning, this particular cry for justice sounds similar to what we're hearing over and over in our land. When we see or hear of injustice, brethren, we should be grieved and we should be angry. When that injustice paints itself in such stark reality before us, our response should be one of anger. That is the human response. That is a God's response, if I can say he responds. That's his action toward evil. He is angry toward injustice. And so should we be. Sin grieves the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit dwells in us, then our eyes should stream down with water over those who have broken God's law. Sin angers our righteous and holy God, and it should anger us if we are to be godly or godlike. God is a righteous judge, and He has indignation, He has wrath, He has anger every day. And so should we tremble and sin not. We should be angry and yet not sin. This should be our response when we 
hear of injustice or see injustice, we should be angry and we should weep. And we should bring that anger to the God who can do something about it. When we see injustice, we should cry to God for justice. And when it is incredible wickedness, then we should cry ardently for justice. That's what everybody else is crying for. Why shouldn't we then cry to the one who actually knows the difference between right and wrong? I have friends who are police officers, Christian men who who look out at the world and seek to make righteous judgments on a regular basis and deal with the situations that they face. And they have frequently mentioned to me there's a whole bunch of ungodly, unchristian people who are police officers. Well, what's their standard of justice? They're crying for justice, but what's their standard? The world's crying for justice, but what's their standard? You see, here's the problem. We need to have a standard for what is just and what is unjust. And without a God of righteousness behind it, an absolute standard of right and wrong, then we're just left to existential, individual, relativistic views of what's right and what's wrong. And so everybody cries for justice. And yet we're not crying for the same thing. Brethren, we need to bring our cries for for justice to the God of heaven and earth who is righteous in all that he does and in all that he says and has an unbending standard of righteousness by which he judges the world. Well, that's where the psalmist begins. He begins with this ardent appeal. An urgent appeal for justice. And then in verses 4 through 7, we move to the, the filing of criminal charges. The filing of criminal charges. Look at this ugly picture that he paints as he writes out his charges and describes the sin of the people around him. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Jehovah, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, Jehovah does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Their behavior, as it's described here, is wicked. That's the word that's used. They're they're performing wickedness. They're performing that which is troublesome, that which is moving toward doing harm to others. The word stresses both planning and expressions of deception that lead to a painful result. As he describes them, notice how he describes them both in their words, and in their actions, and in their attitude. Everything about them is wrong. Their words are are arrogant, and they just constantly berate people. This word that speaks of pouring forth, this constant flow. They belch forth, one, one other passage says, they belch forth their swords and their painful words. They're, they're berating, they're insolent, they're rude. They speak in derogatory ways. And then they can't say anything except to talk about themselves if they're not berating somebody else. They're boasting about themselves, speaking of themselves. Their words are wicked. Their actions then are more than just wicked words. They actually have hateful, 
violent, vicious actions. Now, granted, this particular passage addresses religious persecution. God's people being persecuted because they are God's people. They crush your people, O Lord. They afflict your heritage. These are pictures of just grinding God's people down into the dust Whether physically or verbally or financially, they are battering them, they are destroying them, they are humbling them, they are humiliating them. But then notice in the next phrase, he drops the specific expression to talking about God's people and just talks about those who are, can I use a modern word, disadvantaged? Those who don't have the resources or access to resources to deal with things, the the widows, the stranger, the foreigner who's from out of town, he, he doesn't have his own home and his own setup, the one who is the, the orphan who has no parents, nobody to care for him. And notice how the actions are described. Hateful actions. They slay them. They slaughter them. They murder them. And then they do it with impunity, or at least they think they do it with impunity. For notice how they, dis- they speak about God after this. They go on to say, Jehovah doesn't see. The God of Jacob, he doesn't even understand what's going on. We are so clever. We are so powerful. We are so influential. We've gotten away with this. God hasn't even noticed. And if he did notice, he didn't know what he was looking at. We're so clever. These are the people that are being brought by the psalmist before God. And he's saying, these are the people I want you to deal with, O God. This is the, the wickedness. They're wicked in their words. They're hateful and vicious in their actions. And their attitude is one of impunity and unbelief. They mock you. They have no fear of you before their eyes. Pastor Brian Davis had a very helpful statement at this point. He said, any injustice at its core is an injustice because God is not being rightly honored. Injustice is going to grow wherever the fear of the Lord is not. Injustice is going to grow wherever the fear of the Lord is not. When people think God does not exist, then injustice is going to abound. Brethren, this is... How we can pray when we come to God as we look around at our society. We look around and we've got uh, rulers in our land who are acting like little kings over their kingdoms and, and passing rules and regulations about who can do what and who can't go where and what you must do when you get there. And we have all kinds, we're wrestling with, well, who's right and who's wrong? But they're all passing their rules and we're going, wait a minute, I'm trying to just, what's just and what's not? And just we're trying to get that all sorted out, then we've got violence that appears. We have murder that's pressed on our, on, our, on, on our screens and thrust upon us. And we're saying, that's wicked. That's not right. And then before we have a chance even to stand up for what's just and right in a situation like that, it explodes all across America. 
And we're asking, well, who's just in what they did over there in Los Angeles? Or who's just in what they're doing there in Seattle? And who's just in what? And, we're just, and before we can even sort through all that, well, then there's another instance, incident that throws itself up. And we're saying, wait a minute. And I think we need to stop, brethren, at times and just say, wait a minute, Lord, how long? Look at all this wickedness, this ugliness, this sin that I'm faced with on a regular basis and I'm trying to sort it through. I need to put it before the throne of God and come to the God of all the earth and plead with Him that He, that He would act in justice. That He would bring about a just resolution to these things. And as the ugliness intensifies, brethren, may our prayers intensify. James Montgomery Boyce said this, he said, Avenging justice from God is what everyone should desire. And he highlights that word desire. Avenging justice from God is what everyone should desire when they observe terrible wrongs being done. He makes an ardent appeal. He brings before the Lord of heaven and earth these criminal charges. And then in the third place we have the cross-examining of witless witnesses. Ardent appeal, criminal charges, and witless witnesses. Now I chose the word cross-examining because I like that word. Because that reminded me of Perry Mason. You know, and and Perry Mason was was that lawyer who seemed like everything was going against him until the very last scene in the courtroom and he pulls up some ridiculously obvious simple question and he asks the witness the question you go why is he asking that that just seems so obvious and then when the man answers or the woman answers the question then Perry Mason comes back with another question and then he comes back with another and before you know it the person's been caught in their own lie or the other person has been exposed and they were so obvious questions well that's kind of what the psalmist does next is he brings out these obvious questions and he and he addresses these I call them witless because I didn't want to call them stupid. (laughs) My Bible calls them stupid. (laughs) They're fools. He says, pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? Verse 8. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are mere breath. Now I have to mention as I come to this cross-examination section here that there's a question of interpretation. And the question arises around who's being questioned. Right now it's clear who he's asking the question of because he's saying it's the senseless among the people. Now the people there clearly has to do with Israel. But the question is, which people in Israel is he questioning? Is he questioning the same people he's just described in the previous verses? So now he's going after these criminals and getting them to think about the sin they've committed? 
I don't think so because it says that these criminals were, were attacking the people, his people. And so I think who he's addressing are some who are bystanders or some who are even victims, but predominantly he's, he's addressing this group of people among God's people who seem to miss the point. They just seem to be clueless. They seem to be senseless. They seem to have missed what is going on. And it's those people that I believe he's addressing. Now he gives them a very unflattering description. He calls them senseless, literally brutish. He says, you're acting like dull-hearted cows. Uh, my grandfather did have cows on his farm. And they weren't the smartest of creatures. I've heard that sheep are supposed to be dumb, but I tell you, these cows were pretty pathetic. I mean, they, they will follow just about anything that walks in front of them. Uh, they'll walk anywhere that they think there's food. You know, they're just, they're just some pretty silly animals, I would say. And that's what he says. You, you're, you're acting, he says, you people are acting like brutish cows. But he also says they're stupid or they're foolish. It's the opposite of being wise. They don't understand. They even may actually hate real knowledge, for the fool hates knowledge. The one who purposefully buries his head in the sand, or the one who walks around as though his head is in the sand. As my wife was prone to say, three different kinds of people in the world, those who make things happen, those who watch things happening, and those who ask, what happened? Well, that's what these people are. What happened? These, these are people who says, you missed the point. And the psalmist says, I want to address people who've missed the point. Now, let's be sure, let's be understand, let's understand exactly what point they've missed. And so now that's where the cross-examination comes in. Notice how he cross-examines them. He wants to bring out the truth through these questions. And the first thing he does is he says, open your eyes. I want you to think accurately. I want you to understand The wicked think that God doesn't understand, and I think you don't understand, and so I want you to think. But then he says, now, let me think, let me ask you some questions, some basic questions. Let me ask you some things that you might know from your early science classes. Who made the ear? Who made your eyes? What does your ear do? Oh, well, my ear hears. Oh, that's good. And your eyes, what do they do? Oh, they see. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing for a witness to be able to hear and be able to see. He said, well, that's good. He says, so if your ears hear and your eyes see, and God made those ears and he made those eyes, then senseless ones, do you think that maybe somehow God hasn't heard what's going on here? Or maybe God didn't see what just happened? You see what's happened? The people of God have been listening too much to these wicked people saying, we got away with it, and they're beginning to think, oh, they got away with it. Oh, that's not fair. That's not right. And the psalmist is trying to tell them, no. No, they didn't get away with anything. If he made the ear, he heard it. If he made the eyes, he saw it. And then he says, who made the nations? Remember those geography lessons that we used to have? Now I'm not talking about the geography lessons of what are all the countries over in 
in the former USSR. I'm talking about that geography lesson about who set the boundaries for the countries, who established how far they could go and no further, who made one to rise up and the other to come down. You remember those geography lessons that God establishes? I'm the one who established the boundaries of these countries. I'm the one who instructs the nations. I'm the God who brings COVID virus and starts it in one place and makes it spread throughout the world. I'm the one who chastens the nations by bringing economic recessions, wars, struggles, viruses. I'm the one who establishes the nations. And if I chasten the nations, don't you think I can take care of those few people that you're talking about who committed all these crimes? You see what the psalmist is trying to do here in this third section is he's trying to get the people of God to get their minds and ears out of the voices, out away from the voices that the world is speaking and getting them to listen to the voice of God. Getting them to think rightly about who God is and how God acts. And this is the basic point that he's trying to make in this, in this section where he's asking these questions. He's trying to get them to realize nobody is getting away with anything. That's the psalmist's point here. That's why he's crying out to this judge. That's why he's painting all these pictures of the wicked. And that's why he's questioning these people. He says, wait a minute, remember, nobody's getting away with anything. The eyes of the Lord are in every place seeing the evil and the good. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, be careful what you say. For that little bird, he may carry it away. And when you speak in the very presence of God, be careful because he hears every word. You see, brethren, this is what the psalmist wants us to understand. We need to have our eyes open and we need to strive to understand. Stop thinking like those who have no fear of God before their eyes and think like those who know that God is the God of all the earth, the judge of all the earth. They do not fear God. They think that they're getting away with everything. But we know they're not. Let us not lose sight of who's in charge. No one's getting away with it. And brethren, do we really believe what the Bible says about prayer? That God sent His Son into this world and tore Him on the cross that we might have a way of access to the throne room of heaven? Do we believe that? If we believe that, then where do we go when we see these injustices in the world? then we better be frequently going to the throne of the righteous God through the person of Jesus Christ and bringing our requests and our pleas to Him and appealing to Him that He will do justice, that He will bring about justice. Are you as often on your knees as you are on your virtual soapbox? Are you as passionate in your prayers for justice from God as you are in your posts? And I've got to add something here, and I know it's not in the passage, and, I, and I'm 
complete eisegesis here, brethren, because it's just something that's got to be said. And while we're praying for justice, do you pray for mercy? As you're praying for God to bring justice, are you praying for God to show mercy? It's not a note in the psalm, but it is a note in the scriptures. Sure, the psalmist does pray, destroy them in wrath, destroy them. But the prophet also says, Lord, I have heard of the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your work in the midst of years, in the midst of years, revive it in wrath. Remember mercy. And again, this one pastor that I listened to had a very powerful way. He said, are you praying for mercy to be shown to Mr. Chauvin? He says, are you praying that God will bring somebody across his path that bears more than a grudge, but bears the gospel? Brethren, we need to pray for justice. Justice needs to be enacted. And the one and only God who can bring true justice sits on the throne of heaven and rules over all. We don't need to fear, we don't need to be anxious, and we don't need to be carried away with... We just need to take our prayers to Him. Tell Him what you see. Tell Him how you see it. I mean, everybody on any side of this issue can pray this prayer. Whoever you think is right, whoever you think is wrong... In any protest, in any action that has been taken, you can go to the God of justice and say, God, I know that you see and you know and I'm asking you to bring justice. Now, I'm praying that you would do it even in this life. That you would actually use these ministers of of, of yours that you've appointed to rule on your behalf in this world. And I'm asking you to overrule their sinful behaviors and come and make them act in righteous ways and bring about justice in our land. But ultimately, I'm pleading with you to bring justice in the final day. Well, there's the first half of the psalm. Now, in the second half of the psalm, there is a radical change that takes place. Changing from societal concerns and this societal focus, in verses 12 to 21, he turns to a personal focus. He changes, as Calvin says it, he changes from censure to consolation. He changes from a cry for justice to a declaration of blessedness. I mean, just this very word that the next verse starts with in in the New New American Standard, verse 12 starts, blessed. Oh, wait a minute. That's jarring. But here's the change. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity. In this second part, we see, first of all, let me just read the, the, the verses and then I, I'm going to sort through them to try to find the various elements. 
Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, verse 13, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you? one which devises mischief by decree. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. So verses 12 to 21, he comes from his personal concerns, but I want you to note, just kind of scan down through there, note the realism with which he addresses affliction, the realism of affliction. He says, affliction is chastening, and chastening is not necessarily something that is pleasant. Chastening is often something which is unpleasant. Some of us can remember that when we were very young, how chastening was very unpleasant. Well, just because we're no longer children and no longer facing the chastening of the rod from our parents, that doesn't make chastening any less painful. Chastening is God's dealings with sin. It's his physical dealings with his people to instruct them. So the athlete goes through chastening to strengthen his body and to put it through stress that he might get stronger. Chastening is one of the things that the the psalmist says, this is what we feel in affliction. Secondly, loneliness. In the midst of this, the psalmist again asks a question from his own heart. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will stand for me against those who do wickedness? It sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul when he stood before the Roman officials and he said, at my first defense, no one supported me, but they all deserted me. Yeah, brethren, the the psalmist says, you know, in the midst of all these afflictions and all these difficult circumstances, there's loneliness because sometimes I just feel like there's nobody who's going to take my side. And then there's the fear of death in verse 17b. My soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I could die from all this going on here. I'm the one who could be brought to death. Much like the Apostle Paul again. Who said that they were burdened excessively beyond their strength. So that they despaired even of life. The realism of afflictions is that it is painful because there's chastening, there is loneliness sometimes, there's the fear of death, there's the temptation to apostasy. My soul would, he says, if I should say my foot has slipped. There's a danger saying, I'm facing all these things and I'm trying to sort all this out and I could, I could be the one who just gives up on it all. Turns my back on God and walks away. And then there's always that ever-present trial of anxiety. My anxious thoughts multiply within me. And when I preached on this passage years ago, I used that illustration of your mind being like that little room in the, in, and it's filled with flies. Ever, been in a, in, ever gone in a garage that's been locked up for a long time and there's been some garbage in there? 
and you walk in and just the windows are covered black with flies. And you go to swat one, it's like, and then they're everywhere. Well, that's what he says, as, as I see the, the dangers around me, it's like my mind is just filled with all these anxious thoughts, one more thought after another, just constantly flying. And when I think I've swatted one, there's a hundred more that are just pressing themselves and then turn all those flies into wasps. And that's what the psalmist is feeling like as he's going through and seeing all this injustice swirling around him. And he says, my, my mind is, is just full of anxious thoughts. And I'm even confused and I'm even tempted to, to have hard thoughts of God. He says, because he asked this question, he says, can a throne of destruction be allied with you? Are you behind all this? Are you with these people? You see what the psalmist is saying? He says there's this realism in affliction. And yet, and I go through the, the, the difficulties first because he starts this section by saying, blessed is the man who faces this chastening, who, who struggles with this loneliness, who faces the fear of death, who wrestles with the danger of apostasy, who deals with the anxiety of, of thoughts and is confused. Even at times, he says, yet even in all that, God's children can be blessed. They are blessed. He says this is what the mature man is like. And he uses a word for man which is somewhat unique here. Not very often used in the scriptures. It talks about a man of might. A man of power. A man who is mature. And he says this mature man is the one who is blessed in the midst of affliction. Because he sees this chastening as a means of instruction. Brethren, as we face all of the trials and difficulties, the question is, are we, do we see ourselves as those who are blessed? Look at what he says here. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. You see what makes the difference? The law of God. What makes him blessed? And to see this chastening as instruction, he says, because it's the law of God that's governing my thinking. It's the law of God that's instructing me in the midst of this. It's God's instrument for instruction in my life. This affliction drives me to God's book. Let me ask you something. Have all the injustices and all of the struggles and all of the problems of American culture that we're facing in these last few weeks and last few months, have they driven you to your Bible? Have they driven you to your Bible as often as they've driven you to Fox News? Have they driven you to your Bible as often as they've driven you to CNN? Or driven you to your favorite online guru where you can read his blog? Have you found yourself soaking yourself in God's Word that it would instruct your mind how to think about these things? You see, that's what the psalmist says. Here is where the blessedness comes. It comes in the midst of this by looking at God's word and having that word guide and direct us. And that when that word is guiding and directing us, notice what the result is. That you may grant him relief in the days of adversity until the pit comes for the wicked. The wicked are going to fall in their pit. 
He says, but it's being dug right now and it's not finished yet. But you can actually have relief right now in the midst of all of these trials and in the midst of all of this injustice by soaking your soul in the word of God and thinking God's thoughts after him. This is where this relief comes. It's the opposite of war. It's the opposite of raging. It's the opposite of thundering. It's the opposite of boiling over in anger. We, we hear all this injustice and these things are going on and, and we're all tempted to really boil over in anger and get all agitated. And, and, and Okay, yeah, I said we should be angry, but there's a difference between being angry and being agitated. And it's the Word of God which brings that relief and brings that calm and brings that direction of the soul in the midst of this. And in fact, verse 19 says you can actually have delight of soul in the midst of all of these anxious thoughts. You can have delight of soul from the consolations of God's Word. What are the consolations of God? Well, they're the the promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you. They're the promises that God is a God of loving kindness who will hold me up. That God is the one who is with me. He is my help in the midst of these difficulties. He's the one who actually rules over all things and doesn't let these who are wicked have their own way without His guiding and directing all these things for His glory. God has not been overthrown. He will never abandon his people. He will never forsake his heritage. He is always there. So brethren, what's the primary source of information for you in the midst of this pandemic and all of the injustice that's come in recent days? What's your major news source? I hope above all else it's the word of God. I hope above all else that you're going to God's word for direction. Are you asking the question, Lord, what are you teaching me? In, what are you teaching me in all these things? Are you at peace or are you agitated? Are you delighting in the promises and consolations of God and in His character? Are you resting in His loving kindness? Are you, are, are you in turmoil in the midst of difficulty? Brethren, we shouldn't be surprised that in a sin-cursed world, in people that are that are whose hearts, many of them, are at enmity with God. We shouldn't be surprised that these kinds of things are happening. But we have somewhere to go with these things, and we have some way to think of these things. Now, as I close very quickly, I know I've rushed over this last half, but as I close quickly, notice the last two verses of this psalm, which are something of a conclusion. The Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock, of my refuge. He has brought back their wickedness upon them. He will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. I want to ask you as you sit here this morning and as you think about the world that we're in and I want you to put all those things in a sense aside for just a moment because I want to ask you one question. Is God your stronghold? Or is he your adversary? If you were to meet him today, would he be would you be safe in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to stand before God in confidence and in peace because you have a stronghold, a refuge, 
a Savior who has set you free? If you meet God in pure justice today, it's a, it, the, the answer is hell. But if you meet God in Christ, in His mercy, then you will be safe. Is the Lord Jesus Christ your stronghold? Is He your rock and your refuge? Have you fled to Him? Are you clinging to Him in the midst of all the injustice? Brethren, let not this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any... For any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The day of judgment is coming. It's going to come soon. Repentance and fleeing to Christ, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only way to have comfort and safety on that last day. So brethren, as we think of this world, as we think of ourselves... Let's remember two great days, the day of judgment and the day of the cross. Every injustice will be dealt with in one of those two places. Every crime against God will be dealt with in one of those two places. If your sins and your crimes against God are not dealt with at the cross, then you will deal with them in eternity in hell. But if they are dealt with at the cross then you have eternal blessedness and peace to look forward to with God forever. May God help us. We would pray for justice, but that we would also plead for mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We ask that you would be gracious to us and help us that we would be those men and women who are blessed because we are guided by your word. That we have the confidence that you are our God, that you are dealing with us in your loving kindness and not in your justice. Father, help us. Keep us from being all caught up and in turmoil over all that's going on in the world. And guide and direct our steps according to the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.